Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and... And I'm Eric Kaplan, and I'm a television comedy writer out of Hollywood, and I have a PhD in philosophy. And this is Terrifying Questions, a podcast in which we confront terrifying and unsettling questions and talk about them and try to reach a point of courage. What's our terrifying question this week, Eric? Well, our terrifying question this week, we've invited Professor Michael Thaddeus uh, to help us deal with the question or consider the question, does technology endanger something important about human life? And, and welcome, Michael. By the way, this is our first uh, in-person live episode in a while. We're recording this at Taylor's house, and Michael lives down the street. And Michael is an old friend of mine. We went to junior high school and high school together. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. Um, and uh, you raised a very interesting question, and I might try to take issue with the premise of the question right at the outset or complicate the question. I mean, what, what, when you ask whether technology endangers something important about human life, my mind, like that of many people, will go back to a moment 70 or 80 years ago when, when physicists uh, uh, invented the atomic bomb, and the atomic bomb was an accomplishment of technology, and that certainly endangered human life and, in fact, uh, all life on, on, on the uh, planet. But, but I think you're thinking of a different kind of technology. You're probably thinking about information technology, and that's the kind of technology most people think about these days when they talk about tech. Is that right? Well, I guess I'm thinking about not the danger to human life that comes from us being biologically eliminated, but I'm thinking about the danger to human life that might come from us changing into a sort of being that doesn't pay attention to what's important or our lives being impoverished or dehumanized in some way. Uh, not that the other one isn't important, but I don't have anything terribly interesting to say about that one. But it could be not just information technology. This could sort of go back to the steam engine and the pace of changes, the pace of life and people's practices and their mentality and how they divide up their time and how they spend their time. I would say since the Industrial Revolution that structure, the structure of our daily lives have cha has changed a lot and super more so in the information age with cell phones, iPhones, like and electric screens lights. And stuff. Yeah. Electric yeah, lights yeah. could... could um could rob us of the experience of night. Um, the shoe could rob us of something important about the contact between the, the body and the, the ground. Maybe you know, contraception means that children now are a decision rather than just something that a happens happy as part of life. Yeah. Well, the shoes have been around for a long time, so well, you're, not, th you're thinking it's going I, way I don't back, think technology back. needs to be recent technology. Oh, I mean, I, I think many of the things that people complain about information technology certainly go back to the invention of writing, if not the invention of language. So oh. I don't want to necessarily say it has to be made of metal for it to be technology. <laughs> but it's striking how the, the changes foisted on our lives by information technology have happened so fast. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the other developments that you talked about, I think, were rather slow, and, uh, 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 almost glacial, in the pace of, uh, at which they um, came about. But... but um, smartphones, which have changed everyone's life in a dramatic way, have only been around for 15 or 16 years. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody listening to this podcast just about was old enough to remember a, a life without smartphones. Um, and they're a pestilence, aren't they? Yes. They're a pestilence. <laughs> Unmitigated pestilence. I can't, I, I'm so upset at how often when I'm on the subway, I'm like, the, at, when there's a moment of boredom, I want to take out my smartphone and see what's doing. You know, I don't like what it's done to my attention span. 
I mean, at least you're um, candid enough to admit that. And most people won't admit that anything has changed about their internal state from the way that they use technology. I noticed that I've been doing a lot less reading, you know, spending all day reading a book. When I go on a trip and I'm in an airplane and I'm confined to the airplane, I get so much more reading done than in my usual day because I can blow an hour or two hours checking headlines, emails, things pop up on the screen on Instagram that make you want to watch little videos of somebody hitting a home run and a dog jumping into a lake and it's mindless, but there's some trigger that sucks you into it. And it's well, one thing that's very strange about the new way of life is how easy it is to put it aside and yet how seldom most people actually end up doing that. You're perfectly right. If you go to a cabin by the side of a lake and you spend the whole day there, there's a sense of a weight being lifted from you and you're able to go back to that old way of thinking in which you can think in a more expansive and serene way. And when you do it, it feels wonderful. But at the same time, people very seldom do it. But this is why some people are very skeptical about talking about these things as addictions. Because on one definition of an addiction, it's really an addiction if you have withdrawal symptoms. And what I've noticed about these things is that I don't have any withdrawal. Just as the opposite. As you say, once I'm off it, I don't miss it. I don't long for it. I'm, uh, so it's like the longing for it is fed by the use of it. And when you're actually untethered from the phone... Yeah, you feel like, what a relief, and I don't want to go back to it. So. Well, I miss it a little bit, because I'll be like, I, I, I like pinging people in my life who I care about. And I like being like, hey, Bob, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing great, how are you? And I like that. I think it's a pretty shallow form of connection between me and Bob, but it, 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 from, in my case, it has a little bit of an addictive quality, because sometimes I'll be like, ah, oh, man. I want to like I want to bug those people. I want to hear how they're doing. I like the feeling of people paying attention to me, and and when I come back from a trip, I'm like, ah, I get to I get to hit up 15 people and have them say, yes, Eric, we care that you live or die. Well, I have to admit, I do get the whatever it is, the endorphin or whatever chemical thing is going on when I do sit back down with the phone and I can check the the headline or uh-huh, do the uh-huh. do the word puzzle because you do get a little rush from that. There's some kind of feedback thing in the brain that gets you a kind of momentary satisfaction. And oddly enough, you'd get a greater rush from receiving a message than you do from sending a message. Yes. Isn't that right? <laughs> right? Exactly. I like knowing that yeah. people care if I live or die. I like being like, oh, that person sent me a letter? Great. You know? Have you had this experience where you send yourself an email and as soon as you send it, then there's a ping in your box. And even though you just sent the message, part of your brain goes, oh, I got a message. You're a yes, excited. I have noticed that and it's a very strange feeling. <laughs> and it's from myself and then you really feel stupid yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's when you can't deny that that pinging <laughs> sensation is, is real exactly yeah 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 so i think that's changed our lives i think i am more worried about the metallic okay okay so let's not worry too much the about leather. shoes the moccasin i doesn't bother me possibly so much. I'm the not shoe about that writing well, i'm not going to say that uh, let let's put off the shoe yeah. for a, a, yeah. a cobbler <laughs> when we have a cobbler on um i mean writing is an interesting borderline case it's ancient but it did affect oral traditions a lot and memorization. I think you've talked about this in um, a text you gave us to read, um, which I was really delighted by. I, by the way, I can edit this out if you want, but is this supposed to be public knowledge that you've written this? Well, nice I mean, I've, I've, this is, um, <laughs> you're talking about a, a, um, a lecture that I delivered publicly already in several locations, okay. so it's certainly not a secret. Okay. Not the best way to keep it a secret. It hasn't been published anywhere yet. Yeah. Um, but that something is lost in that change from an oral tradition to a written tradition. Um, 
that's for sure. And something was lost in the transition from live music to recorded music. And, and now, I mean, of course, live music still exists. I, I'm sitting in a room, in fact, with a couple of mandolins and a grand piano. Someone is playing those instruments. And, and most um, recorded music nowadays is um, recorded from live music. So recorded music mm -hmm. relies on live music to exist. Nevertheless, the vast majority of music that most people consume is in the form of recorded music. There is much less um, proficiency with musical instruments now than there was a hundred years ago. Um, it's almost a different art form, the recording. Like people, they're called recording artists. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's another interesting case where, of course, recording made certain things possible that simply weren't possible that, uh, before. And yet, um, there's no question that recorded music has uh, has had some kind of harmful effect on the on the tradition of performing music in person. Is it true that in the Renaissance, people would just sit down in their living room and everybody would get an instrument and everybody knew how to play an instrument, or is that a little bit of a myth? I no, mean, I think that's true. It's certainly after dinner they would sing for uh -huh. for sure. If if you were at a dinner party where where both men and women were present, after dinner they would just hand around part books and people would sing from the part uh, books. Oh yeah, people can't do that anymore. No. Well, right, it, it wouldn't even be that hard to learn, but there are just there are other things to do now. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm in this room now. There's an oil painting on the wall. It is an old building, and it's in an old city, certainly by U.S. standards, if not global standards. It's in New York, and there are paper books on the wall. And um, I kind of like it. I, I kind of feel, um, uh, you know, I kind of feel like, it's a less stressful way of being um, not to be pinged every couple seconds with an electronic message. And I think most people would, if the matter were put to them in the terms that you just did, most people would say they agree with you. Most people like peace and quiet and they like the sense of serenity that old fashioned things offer them. But in practice, that's not what people choose. Uh, one thing that, I mean, we haven't talked about automobiles, and automobiles are another um, advance in technology over the last 150 years that has just had a um, revolutionary impact on people's everyday life. Now, you put your money where your mouth is on Because I don't drive and I don't have a smartphone. That's right. Yes, and you don't know how to drive. But what I was going to say is if you look around at the oil paintings that people hang on their walls, including the ones here, you never ever see paintings of cars or highways. <laughs> you never do. It, and, and people understand that a beautiful landscape will not contain highways or factories. Um, and yet we sort of rely on those forms of technology to make our lives easy. So at an aesthetic level, I think people have not made their peace with the, even with the technology that came in with the Industrial Revolution let alone um, what exists now. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you, if you watch movies about, about contemporary life, in the movies, people aren't constantly texting. They're not constantly glued to their smartphones. Mm -hmm. Smartphones might make a uh, cameo appearance, mm -hmm. but you don't see the um, uh, fixation on technology that, that, that you can observe if you just ride on the subway or walk down Broadway. I think we have a natural affinity to things that are a little bit closer to nature. I'm a bit of a, I don't know if conservative is the right word, but I really think there are some, like musical instruments, nothing compares with the wood of a violin or a guitar or a mandolin. They've tried to make mandolins out of fiberglass and plastic, and they sound terrible. 
And the kinds of wood makes a real difference. A guitar made with mahogany sounds different from a guitar made with rosewood. And anybody who knows about them and hears them hears the difference. Not that one of those is better than the other, but those are better than other woods. And when you can listen to the instrument and hear the wood, it's a whole different thing from using artificial materials. And I think it's nothing surprising about the fact that we as an organism have evolved over you know millions of years. Uh, as a species, hundreds of thousands of years, in this kind of relationship with wood and plants and sunshine and forests and stuff. And artificial stuff is much newer. We're much less adapted to it, and it's not going to have the same nuance as a lot of these natural materials. Oftentimes the natural materials are just better. Well, it's, this offers me an opportunity to tell a joke that Eric once made to me you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, he said that when... The, he tastes one of these uh, new artificial sweeteners that had just come on the market. His taste bud said to him, we have been evolving for millions of years, yeah. and we have never encountered anything like this before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? Well, right, probably in a bad way. But what's interesting is that the point that you just made about musical instruments does not apply at all to sporting equipment. You know, yeah, People right. have yeah. made the transition happily from playing with wooden tennis rackets to That's playing with fiberglass rackets. Right. Racing shells are not made out of... Good question. Why is I think they're higher performance. And, and, and yeah. in sports, I think we value performance and competition in a way that maybe we don't in the musical world. That's totally true. Yeah, no, I don't mean to say it's true of every single instance. And of course, there's all kinds of stuff. I love camera equipment, and that's also very new. But now on a, on a smaller scale, I think in a way, camera technology has gotten better only in the sense that it's gotten more efficient and easier to use. It hasn't actually gotten better in terms of image quality if you compare lenses like 100 years ago or 130 years ago to now. An old camera with a great big film surface with a really high quality lens is as good as anything, you know, now. So what we've done is made it more accessible to a wider audience and easier. It's sort of like MP3 files. They don't sound as good as old music, but they're easier. So is that progress or not? I mean, there's a way in which the optical technology, the lenses, hasn't really gotten better. It's gotten more efficient and more available um, so some things get better, but I think we tend to overestimate the as if you know all the improvements are just categorical improvements. Well, a lot of innovations in technology are driven by the profit motive, and um, so the purpose is not actually to make things better; it's to make things that can uh, uh, be manufactured on a larger scale or make more money. For sure, the quality of reception on telephones has gone down in the last yeah. 30 or 40 years. When you used to talk on landlines with copper wires, it would often sound like you were in the next room. And yeah. now it's always, you're breaking up, you're breaking up. It's like a walkie-talkie. Yeah, no, that's gotten much worse. Well, there's, there, there's two things I think maybe worth teasing apart here. One of them is um, sort of the noisiness or organicness of old materials and old practices. And the other is the danger of things being too easy. And and maybe both are true, but they're separate, right? Sorry, I'm speechless. Someone else jump in. <laughs> well, so what I was just thinking, like, you could say what I don't like about um, modern technology is it's, it's all made of plastic, and I prefer things that are made of wood. And you could say what I don't like about modern technology is it's making things easy, and I think it's good for things to be hard. 
And and do you think these are related? Do you think both are true? Like, which is more important? In a sense, both of those are very bourgeois views, right? Both of those are things that could only be said by someone with a certain amount of leisure. Um, if you're working class and you could only afford the object made of plastic, you can't afford the object made of wood, then you don't really have the luxury to prefer the You could want it. Yeah, like you could true. you could not want stuff that you can't afford. Like you could I could imagine being working class and be like, I wish I had a horse. I don't have a horse, all I have is a Honda Civic, but I'd like to have a horse. That it doesn't make it bourgeois to, to think it's something. It's fun a whole about different a thing, horse. though. You have the reasons you have a horse are now not for transportation. It's a, it's a very luxurious sort of recreational thing to have a horse. That's not even bourgeois. Yeah, anymore. that's you aristocratic. Have to be, right, yeah. out and out aristocratic. Yeah, yeah. Aristocrats take over the stuff that used to be reserved for the masses, like rowing. Always strikes me that's a very aristocratic sport, but it used to be slaved work, right? So it's sort of <laughs> elevated up into the right. upper echelons. Um, Oh, by the way, it's it's sort of like you you could I think have a progressive take on this, which is like, let's look at those people who were so rich they could do whatever they wanted, and see what they did because it's probably pretty good because they had the time and money to get whatever they wanted. And now let's try and have a progressive tax system so that more people can do it. But we don't necessarily have to think that like, oh, I all I can do like I. As a as a working man, I'd rather stay on, hang around in the hospital waiting room for seven hours, rather than go and see a doctor who knows my name and talks to me. No, <laughs> I would like to be able to not wait for seven hours. I don't want to create a world where everyone has to wait for seven hours. It's not inher- inherently good. I mean, this is not where the direction I expected this discussion to go, but I, I'm you know I'm delighted that it did. I, I I'm very distressed with it by all of the. Uh, attacks on privilege in public discourse. I mean, to my mind, privilege is a wonderful thing, and, and the objective should be to extend privilege to all, not to abolish it. Um, <clears throat> if privilege simply means having access to good things in life, which is which is what you're construing it to be. Yeah, I'm sort of saying, well, I mean, to some extent, um, super rich people are twits, and they, <laughs> they spend their time doing silly things. Well, a lot of them are spending their but time putting themselves them. in rocket ships and blowing themselves up into the, the stratosphere. That's not sort of they, uh, old They fashioned. often do silly yeah. things. But, like, some of the things they do aren't silly, and they have the time and leisure to figure out what's out there and buy the thing that seems best. But it also it seems that in, in this day and age, when so many things have been industrialized or technologized, that privilege consists in um, being able to command someone else's personal attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, having, having the personal attention of other human beings is the, is the uh, rarest form of privilege. And that's a form of privilege that we should be striving to reclaim and extend to everyone. If you think about how many occasions have you had in your life when someone else really paid close attention to you and your wishes or needs or interests or even what you had to say. It's very rare. Um, I, I, when I was a doctoral student, I got one hour of uh, concentrated attention a week from my thesis advisor, who was a, an admirable person and a brilliant mathematician. But, you know, that was, I mean, I saw him 24 times uh, um, during, during full term for, for three years. So, so that was basically 75 hours of his time. And yet 75 hours of personal attention from a brilliant person was a pivotal experience in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how rare that is. How, how often have you got anyone to pay attention to you uh, closely for, for even an hour? See, that's what I think. I think the thing about how technology has shaped or transformed 
human life or even what it is to be a human being, which we may disagree about whether that makes sense to talk that way. Really, one central aspect of that is how time is divided and managed and stretched out or compressed. So when time is compressed so that you have two-minute conversations with somebody, you're on the phone, you're waiting for them, and then you have a 30-second consultation to get a drug prescription or or you're rushing between one thing and another and multitasking, as opposed to a day in which you know, time can sort of unfold and you can have the time to do something in depth, it changes the whole nature of the practice. And the thing I worry about is not honestly whether something's made out of wood or metal or whatever, I'll just, just using that as an example of how certain old-fashioned things are underrated. But really what makes a big difference is the temporality, I think. Because, again, after all, there's a day. It's 24 hours. There's night. There's, there's day. We're biologically attuned to the cycle. And that's been chopped up and rearranged and twisted around in ways I think is really at odds with our nature in some ways. So I, I worry about that more than about the, the materiality, although I'm still I'm going to stand by my claims about ma- the material superiority of wood for mandolins. So what you mean is that information technology is changing the way that we use our time, and it's atomizing the way we use our time. It's forcing us to multitask or to pay attention to things for brief moments. And it's forcing us to pay attention differently and in superficial ways and switching from one task to another and therefore robbing us of a certain kind of depth of concentration and attention. I find that when I'm writing, I can really only be productive when I'm writing if I at least tell myself, even if it's not completely true, that I can just relax because I have all day to work on this. And then I can get in a relaxed enough state that I can really concentrate and actually write. Um, It's much harder to think I have 90 minutes now to try and write something and get something done. I often can get something done, but it doesn't feel like it's going to give me the depth of concentration to really do my best work. Aren't there some ideas that are so deep that it takes a whole week to get into them properly (laughs) and others that are even deeper that take a full year? Well, you know, I mean, you do have to move your body in different ways. So you can sit in your office and get stuck. And then if you go out for a nice brisk walk or a jog, suddenly the dust can settle and, you know, you can have a gestalt shift so that suddenly you see something. But it's nice to have the leisure, the privilege to be able to take a jog through the park. So, yeah, I'm worried that a lot of our technology is sort of at war with our something like our nature. I mean, a related point has to do with the volume of data that technology can process today. I mean, the way that our time has been atomized is closely related to the sheer volume of information that we're bombarded with. And we're bombarded with information because technology can bombard us with information. This is possible in a way that it simply wasn't before. You know, we're living in in an age that's said to be data-driven, and people in all walks of life are more preoccupied with gathering large volumes of data than they ever were before. But that's not actually a natural way for human beings to think. So if we're getting too much data, what's the ideal amount? Of data, like if you were, you know, I was thinking about Rilke wrote letters to a young poet. If you were, if you were to set up, like a like a young person came to you and said, "I want to, I want to live a good life. How much data should I consume a day? How should I run it? Like, what would you suggest they do?" <laughs> they don't need to be a young person; could be an old person. I don't know why I made them a young person, but it gives them a, it's a little more optimistic. Gives 30, them more time. Thirty-two point four <laughs> kilobytes. No, I, I mean, of course, there's not going to be any. Um, definite answer to that question, but I I would just, you know, suggest being mindful of the possibility that there is such a thing as too much. And that... um, And how do we know we've reached too much? Maybe that's the question. Well, more data are not necessarily better. I mean, I'd say a meaningful level of data is one that 
you as a human being are able to evaluate meaningfully and not mechanistically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Could you give us an example? Well, <laughs> I collected information about the uh, sizes of classes at Columbia University. Now, now I should cop to the fact that I, you know, I, I also have a um, a second life as a severe critic of my own university administration, and uh, I collected a lot of information about class sizes at Columbia. But I did it by hand. Initially, I did it by hand, and I I typed in all of those class size figures by hand, and that limited the amount of data I could collect. I, I did, I mean, I did a shocking amount by hand. By you know, I collected numbers about the size of maybe, I don't know, five ten thousand classes by hand. Can you avail yourself of like cut and paste on the computer? It was. It turned out to be faster to just really? type from one window into another. <laughs> okay. I tried that, really? but um, but the fact is that doing it by hand had some value. That gave me some intimate um, detailed familiarity with the numbers. I was able to see patterns in the numbers that I wouldn't have otherwise detected. And I was able to think of uh, additional directions to investigate. You know, I became aware not only, for example, that class sizes at Columbia are larger than they were said to be, but also that they have been growing over time. I became keenly aware that some departments and some subjects have much larger class sizes than others. And I had, wouldn't have learned those things unless I had actually gone through all of the data by hand. And so, you know, one rule of thumb is that there's a certain size of a data set that you can meaningfully um, study by manual techniques. And then there's a much larger size where you need, you need computers. If, if you have, in other words, a few, you know, a few thousand data points, that's one thing. If you have millions, that's quite another. Oh, I, this is a, an off-road question. How many people do you think you know who they are? And when I say know who they are, I mean in the sense in which if I say, who is Dick Cavett? And you're like, oh yeah, he was a guy with a talk show in the 70s. What's the, what's the size of that set? How many people are there? And you know, Paracelsus. Oh, he was a Renaissance wizard. <laughs> you know, uh, or, you know, your cousin Richie. He's your cousin Richie. You know, how many people do you know to that degree of depth? Now we're talking about memory. Now we're talking about a very different topic. I know. But, I just. But I'm, a related we might edit, we no, might edit but, this out. No, but a related. Pos- I'm interested so in sort of people you've met. The, just, no, not people you've met. Like I've never it. met Paracelsus. Well, of course, information Except, technology and human memory are 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 potentially topics that are of of, of uh, you know intimate and profound relationship. But in a sense, one is the exact opposite of the other. Information technology has to do with information and data that are. Uh, um, remembered in, on some silicon chip or, or on a piece of paper or something. What you're talking about now are data that you carry around in your brain. In your head, yeah. I think what I'm coming around to is like, there may be a comfortable level of facts and people that we can handle with our minds, our brains, our bodies. And if you get too far beyond that, your skill can kind of degrade and your experience degrades because then you start to be nervous and worry, oh, because you can't have it all in your mind at once, so therefore you're always kind of nervous you're going to miss some of it. So I'm just sort of wondering, like, what is the size of those capacities? And, and I'm, you, I am asking you because you have hundreds of sonnets memorized. So you're a no, memorious, no, you're a no, memorious dozens. dozens of sonnets. I, I memorize a lot of poetry, that's yeah, right. So you're a memorious fella. But, but there have been people in human history, right? It was certainly believed that in, in um, ancient times that um, the Homeric epics were recited from memory. Right. And I think people have tried to memorize them in modern times, right? I, I thought there were people who have memorized the entire Iliad or the entire Odyssey or pretty much the whole thing. In right, the original right. And, and, and I'm sure 
Although it does make me wonder how searchable it is, or if you if you want to know something, you have to start reciting it. And- <laughs> One thing that's very interesting, and this is, a, again, total digression, is that it's much easier to go forward than it is to go back. Yeah. If, if you think of a line of poetry and you ask, well, what's the next line? That's easy to come up. If you ask, what's the line before? Uh-huh. Almost impossible. You get a right human, start at Human it mind, behind. right. Yeah. So, the, it, I mean... And that, of course, bears on the question of how, how does human processing power differ from machine processing mm-hmm. power. Machine, machines can do certain things effortlessly that human beings have great difficulty with, like remembering the previous line of a, of a poem or uh, um, doing calculations involving signs. Right? In mathematics, right, if you, getting your signs wrong is a way human beings will constantly fall into error. With, mm-hmm. with uh, machines, that's simply not an issue. Mm. Like the question, what percentage of letters in Kublai Khan are G. It's impossible for me to answer that without acting like a computer. I need to turn myself into a computer to answer that. Well, you'd have to write the whole thing down. I would have to write it down and start calculating it like a computer, basically. It's not how I experience it. It would be a very good experiment. Well, you have a long uh, airplane flight ahead Mm -hmm. of you later on, right? To just get a a notebook, a blank notebook, and then write down the name of every human being you can remember. All the kids that you knew Adam. in kindergarten. Adam. Adam, Eve, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, start with all the biblical names, that's right. But write, write down the name of every human being you've ever met that you can remember and see how far you would get. But My guess is it'll be shocking how quickly you would Street fighting mathematics, out. right? You would guess it's 5,000 or 50,000. Well, I guess it's closer to 5,000 than yeah. 50,000. It depends what you mean by knowing. How well, many could I you... gave the example. I tried to give an extensive definition. Random sort access. Of like There's going to be some borderline cases. And, and I don't need to be able to generate them. It means if someone says to me, and this actually came up because I was thinking about this show, if we're ever going to put it on TV, I'm like, that's kind of like Dick Cavett. I'm like, Dick Cavett? I haven't thought of Dick Cavett in decades, but I kind of know who he, who but he is. But there's going to be a lot of names where you say, I've heard the name, but I couldn't tell you what it is. I bet there's a big difference between that and people you know or have John met or care about. New Yorker writer who's the son oh, of Bert, Bert Lahr. Yeah, okay. so like I haven't thought of John Lahr. <laughs> if I took out that, that notebook on the piece, I mean, apologies to John Lahr if you're listening to this. If I took out that notebook, I probably wouldn't write down John Lahr. But is there anything cognitively different about remembering who person was based on an encyclopedia entry and remembering the name of a city or where it is or an event or a war? This could all be more or less the same things, like knowledge by quick description. I bet there's a real limit on the number of people you can feel comfortable saying you know enough to like care about what happens to them. Like if you read that they fell out of an airplane, do you care one way or the other? I bet it's oh, 50 any, or any 60, man's 50. death diminishes me. I don't know about you, <laughs> especially John Lark. <laughs> it may be that socially we're we're designed to care about only a certain number of people really very deeply. I mean, um, <laughs> right? What are some other rules of thumb? Or how to avoid, like, I, I feel it's almost like this cheap, fast glut of information. It's a little bit like, I knew some people in Hollywood who came up with the wrong notion that it would make them better, it would make them healthier to have colloidal silver. And the sign that you're taking too much colloidal silver is you turn blue. So I'm wondering, like, what are the signs that people are taking too much fast, cheap data into their lives? And what w- would be some hygienic practices to, to avoid that. And, and by the way, I will say, the danger that I find is that I'll be, whatever, reading a book, and someone will be like, ah, you know, there's this great book. Oh, I'll give an example. I was reading, I think, I think it was a New York Review of Books, or maybe, maybe it was Washington Post, and it said, the man who wrote, who re-examined how we look at the culture of antiquity and invented the notion of late antiquity 
has written a biography, a memoir Peter about Brown. his own life. Yes. And I wrote down, I have to read this. I have to read this book. It sounds fascinating about his life and how he came up with the notion of reevaluating late antiquity. But I would say I really don't need to read it. I shouldn't have made that note. I've got other things on my mind. I don't need to know the history well, of the guy who came There's an article in the New York Review of Books called Ego History, right? It's about the trend of historians writing autobiography. I'm not, I'm not trying to poor mouth this guy. It sounds to me like a very interesting book, but I think because my life is limited, I probably shouldn't read it. And I also think about the fact that every day more books that are worth reading are written than I can read in a day. So I'm falling further and further behind. Um, and yet, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Like, and it's an anxiety-provoking way to look at it. Like somehow, like people talk about a bucket list that I need to make sure that there are no critical books to read that I haven't read. And what about the Mahabharata? And what about Plotinus? And well, you know, so <laughs> Lewis Carroll was fond of pointing out that if, if you know if, if the number of letters in the alphabet is finite, and if the length of a reasonable book is finite, then there's actually only a finite number of books that can be written. And, and at some point, every possible book that can be written will be written. And then the author will wake up and say, not uh, uh, what book shall I write, but which book shall I write? Uh-huh. I used to tell people, you should never worry about writing, because at any point, there's only 27 things you can do. You can write one of the letters, or you can put a space. I see. So just make one, make a decision, and once you've made that decision, make another one, and pretty soon you'll have written Ulysses, right? <laughs> but I mean, this brings us back to technology and the chatbots, because the chatbots have an unlimited capacity to write prose, but the constraint is not the uh, capacity to write. The constraint is the capacity to read. Does anybody want to read all of the garbage that mm-hmm. they spew out? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the question that you pose is about to become much, much more acute because there's going to be just a lot more polished looking computer generated prose out there okay i'll ask I'll, 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 how many books should a person read in a year again the 3.2 what do you want me to say <laughs> well i want to say it depends what books they are obviously okay. like 50 no that's too many <laughs> 50 is i mean six so oddly <laughs> enough in, in the in the core curriculum at columbia um it starts with a course called Lit Hum, Literature Humanities, a, a storied course. You know, it's supposed to be a sort of introduction to liberal education for um, our best and brightest undergraduates, right? Oh, well, in fact, not even the best and brightest. They all have to take it. It starts with the Iliad, then the Odyssey, uh, um, if memory serves, and they spend maybe one or two weeks on each of those books. Yeah, so what, yeah. w- right, so what students are really being taught is, while they are being taught something about antiquity and about the epic and so on, but they're also being taught the art of speed reading, mm-hmm. you know, or skimming yeah. or worse, maybe. Or pretending. Right, pretending, <laughs> yeah. exactly, yeah. bluffing. I would say that trying to read, you know, the Iliad in two weeks and the Odyssey in two more weeks is, is some kind of upper limit, you know. That, that's probably a little more. It would be better to spend uh, a longer time on them. And, so that's and, like 26 books. Right. Actually, you know what? So may I admit something? We were assigned to read the Odyssey in high school. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I read the first three books and the last three books. I've never read the Iliad. I have read the Odyssey. Okay, I, felt, I like the Odyssey. I it had, mon- it it, had so. monsters. So a few years ago, I read the Iliad in the following fashion. Um, I went out to a bar every night for 24 consecutive nights, ordered mm. one drink, mm. and then I read one book. And even then, reading It alone, was a different drink for each book? Was it a book-appropriate drink? <laughs> I wasn't that uh, ingenious. I, mm. I, just, I just had a beer. But, but anyway, um, I have this copy of the Odyssey that I carried with me on a transcontinental bicycle trip 35 years ago and never read. 
And I told you, I've read the first three books and the last three books, but that's it. So I finally started. Last night, I went to the bar, I had the beer, and I read the first book of the Odyssey. So maybe I'll get through it. Oh, you just started yesterday? I just started yesterday. Oh, yeah. I thought I was going to read the Mahabharata a few years ago, and I was working at the Big Bang Theory. It's colossal. Mm -hmm. And I read three books of it, and I thought they were really good, but I also kind of felt a little bit like I got the point, um, and I didn't need to read... Like, I would have been doing nothing for that year in terms of reading, but the Mahabharata, and at some point I ran out of steam. Well, what you said about literature all equally well applies to data and your previous question. Now, how much data is enough? Well, with data, you can sample. You don't necessarily have to go through all of it. And the same thing is true of literature. Maybe this is a heretical thing to say. It's all right to read part of a book and not finish the book. With these, you know, pillars of the canon, maybe just um, to make sure that we get to the important part, we should read the whole well, thing. Well, with the Iliad, you can skip through a lot of lists of ships. You know, that's pages and, battles, and pages. Exactly about, who yeah. slew whom and through yeah. what orifice the spear <laughs> entered and through what part of the body it departed. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, do you ever wonder this? It's like we've got such a huge amount to choose from now that people in past ages did extraordinary things with a much more limited library of things to actually look at and read. And even just going back to the 19th century, you know, Nietzsche did an enormous amount making a big deal about Schopenhauer. Now, I like Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is great, whatever. Nietzsche got a huge amount out of Schopenhauer that not a lot of other philosophers do get. But it, like, really, it was like a trampoline for him. It boosted him into doing these spectacular things. And with, a, frankly, a kind of, you know, Schopenhauer's nice, but he's not one of the super greats. He's a little shallow. And most people sort of zip through Schopenhauer and think, oh, that's pretty interesting, but not great. And so, in other words, he made a huge amount of use of much smaller resources than what we have at our fingertips now. And yet he did something pretty spectacular. It's like we've got too much, it's too much information, and we end up gobbling it up in a superficial, shallow, fragmented way. So an information diet. Yeah, you know, you're asking how many books to read. I don't have a number either, but I, yeah, my, I, I find that I do a lot better, again, when I have plenty of time. I, I read slowly anyway, so I've, I've often skipped stuff with assignments just because I just cannot read quickly enough to read, you know, a 500-page thing in a you know, week's assignment. It's just not going to happen. So I've learned to sort of be selective, but I, but I feel like I have to read slowly or else I'm just not getting it. I won't remember things. I won't get the nuance. And I don't know how people do it. Um, so, yeah, I think take your time is what I would say. That was Wittgenstein's advice to philosophers. Take your time. Um, slow, deep, meditative, absorb it, think about it. Well, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to read something slow, deeply, and meditate? You have to read math slowly, right? I mean, math textbooks, you don't zip through them. You can't speed read a math right. textbook. Right. Uh, to be honest, I've never really mastered the art of reading mathematics, but um, the way I tell other people to read, at least a, a, a technical work like that, is not to start on page one. Mm -hmm. If you start on page one, you'll bog down around page seven. Mm -hmm. um, but rather to start and go through the whole, riffle through the whole book and try to figure out what the, um, what the climax, as it were, of the apex or the summit of the whole book is. What is the whole book leading up to? What is the purpose and goal of the book? Are there some theorems or principles that are stated, you know, near the end of the book, in fact, that everything is building up to? And then to try and um, climb down from the summit, as it mm. were, figure out what, what are the preparatory steps that have to be stated at the beginning in order to get you to the goal. Let's pause here because I think there was a pause for a break earlier that I can use. But okay, I think we're we'll about take a pause our second now. break. Yeah, all right. I'll take a quick pause and we'll be right. And back. let's also talk about: Is there anything since this is probably winding down? Like, are there any points that we want to hit? Um, I mean, 
every point you raise, you know, brings up, it's like the, the, um, the Hydra, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Five new points that we, okay. and, and we're not really talking about technology that much per se, but who cares? Yeah, I don't care. back um we're using technology for you all to um hear this and sometimes the tantras say you need to use a thorn to pull out a thorn so that's life <laughs> so you don't worry that technology is distorting or corrupting or undermining some aspect of human nature or a human essence or anything oh, of like course that. i absolutely do worry about that yes oh, oh yeah. completely um, well, as I said, I take issue with the idea that there is such a thing as a human essence. Mm -hmm. so, so in that sense, I don't worry. What I do worry is that information technology is changing some fundamental aspects of, of human life as, as it exists today and as, as it has existed for centuries. And there are things that we could lose very, very fast. Well, and there's things if, that we'll regret. If, if, you, if you ask the question, are you worried that leaving the piano out in the rain will destroy the piano? You can say yes without being committed to there being a timeless, a historical essence of pianos. Right, right. <laughs> so, 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 what are the what are the chief dangers uh, of this uh, information technology? What are, well, let's make a list. Distraction. I would say distraction is. Yeah. It's certainly the word that springs to my mind. It's one of the foremost. And uh, what's distraction? Let's come up with a deep definition of what distraction is. Because sometimes, like sometimes, you know, Dad's reading the paper, and you're like, I. I want you to talk to me. Stop distracting me. I'm reading the paper. But sometimes I'll say, Dad is distracting himself from the family by reading the paper. So sometimes what is the distraction and what's the focus can be tricky. So what is distraction? Distraction means the inability to concentrate on what you think is important. Okay. And, and I mean, this is one aspect of technology that needs to be understood is that technology inevitably involves some sort of cooperation between yourself and whoever made it. Mm -hmm. Whoever made it has, has uh, purposes and goals in building the technology and selling it to you um, that will not perfectly align with your own goals. Of course, you're not supposed to buy it. You're not supposed to adopt it unless you think it aligns with your goals as well. But that, that alignment is always very imperfect, very Well, imprecise. if you look at a colonialist situation, you can be like, well, you'd better adopt the colonizer's technology or your kids won't have a job or you won't have a job, but you can be pretty upset about it. Right. Um, and sometimes maybe we're all in the position uh, in relationship to these tech companies of a colonized population where for their own dastardly ends or self-serving ends, they're trying to sell us stuff and then also make us feel if we don't buy it, we'll lose out. We won't be able to be part of our own society. But the dystopia is more like Brave New World than 1984 in the sense that most people who have adopted um, tech innovations are, are, appear to be willing adopters and think right. that they enjoy it. And I suppose many, I, I mean, look, when I was a teacher in Thailand in the uh, 90s, the young people definitely felt like they would rather go to a discotheque than to, to a temple because they felt that the temple was boring. 
But of course, they were existing in a world where the power was in the hands of American culture and not in the hands of traditional Thai cultures. So because they were young people and wanted to have power and wanted to live lives that were free and unfolding, they wanted to get with the program. So I think we may be like those Thai students that we want it, but we want it because the world's changing so quickly and we don't want to be left behind. Uh, the, the issue that comes up with information technology, or at least one of them, beyond distraction, is surveillance. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, there's a there's a asymmetry of information where, um, you know, there's a certain level of information that I share with my devices where I know that I'm sharing it, but then there are things that I don't even know that I'm sharing. And the, the purpose uh, of making the hardware and the software from the... Um, developer's point of view is to gather information about me yes um it's like bentham's panopticon you know the the panopticon was a novel form of of prison or asylum that that bentham proposed at in around 1790 i guess where um the guards would occupy a tower in the center of the structure and they would be in a chamber with blinds they could look out and see the prisoners and the cells all around the periphery but the prisoners couldn't see the guards so um, the information technology that we have today is very similar. Um, users are offered all kinds of services like social media, you know, translation services, web hosting, and so on that are useful to us. But um, especially when those services are offered for free, um, <clears throat> that's not the way that the developers are making money. They're making money by serving you advertising or, or selling your personal data to, um, you know, insurance brokers or yes. um, or the police, you know, governments, whatever. So there's this information asymmetry and there's an asymmetry of goals. My goals are to use the uh, uh, free services that the developers provide. Their goal is to gather information yes. about me. Yes, um, So I guess to distraction, I would add surveillance is one of the primary hazards of, of information technology as it's presently constituted. Yeah. You can imagine some other world in which these technological tools were not developed by profit-seeking corporations, where they were developed by consortiums acting in the public interest, you know, nonprofit organizations where they would be offered f- for free to the public or, in fact, f- for a fee. If it, the, the, uh, the money to finance technological development could come from end users, but that's not how it's uh, 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 constituted at the moment. You know, I was going to say, it's also not the case that distraction is just a kind of unforeseen bad side effect of these technological innovations. I think it's something that's deliberately calculated and manipulated to grab attention, to keep attention moving. It's like there's this, I don't want to call it a conspiracy, but it is kind of a conspiracy, a corporate conspiracy of keeping the money flowing precisely by keeping people's attention skipping from one thing to oh, another. Unquestionably, and to yes. prevent their attention from sinking deep into something where they can be in control of their time and not be baited into some other opportunity to click a button and, and move the money. It's extremely frustrating. What you say is absolutely true, is, is that you know the business model has evolved in the direction of distracting people and waylaying them. If you think about the electronic readers, you know, there were nooks and kindles and so on. And originally they were designed to be black and white, to look opaque, you know, and to offer no other service besides the book. And they have moved more in the direction of being more like tablets. They allow you to check your email and so on. And and that's partly because users themselves have uh, have requested it, but it's also because it's just easier to serve advertising, to gather information about the readers and so on, for, for the developers to make money uh, in, in other ways. Well, um, what advice do you have for our listeners who want to be less destructed? Cut the cord. <laughs> Quite simply. I mean, I'm an extreme Luddite. I warned you that before I came on, right? I'm an extreme Luddite. And, and Well, I sent you an email today, yes. and you responded to it. Yeah. How did you do that? What? I did. Look, I, I, 
I'm not capable of taking my own advice, not at least not in its extreme form. Our whole society is addicted to technology to some degree, and and I, you know, I suffer from that to the same degree as everyone else. Besides, if if you want to have any kind of social life at all these days, unless you want to be a hermit and live in a cave, mm, in order good. to communicate with people, <laughs> this is part of the problem again with information technology as is currently constituted, is that the compulsory and the optional aspects of the technology are inextricably intertwined. And of course, this is intentional. This is to make the optional stuff not so optional. So if you even want to get on an airplane nowadays, you pretty much have to have a smartphone. Yeah, you can print the boarding pass in other ways, but it's going to get more and more difficult to live without using um, information technology in the manner that is prescribed. You answered Eric's email on a desktop computer, I'm assuming. So so I'm wondering, could you say... I will spend 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening seeing if anyone critical has sent me an email and responding to it. And every month, I'll pick a book to read and read that book and think about it slowly. And other than that, don't use these things. It's very hard to live by those precepts. But yeah, those are those are things to aspire to. Yeah. I mean, some people, and again, I haven't managed to do this, but some people have a, um, you know, a uh, technological Sabbath, one day of the week where they don't turn their devices on. Other people stop using them, you know, at a certain hour before going to bed. Oh, that's wonderful that this could remind you of why people had that tradition, you know, thousands of years ago. It sort of turns out to be (laughs) pretty durable, like a reminder of like, you know, the one day off was a really good idea. It was a good idea. And, you know, I've had, I thought you were going to say this, that I've known people who have this kind of technological sort of discipline or daily schedule. Maybe this is what you just said. You wake up in the morning, you answer all your emails, and that segregates it. It's hard now, to live up now, to that, now too. Why is it hard? What is this perverse desire in the human heart to be distracted from what we care about? You'd think we would want to think about what we care about so we can do something about it. But the problem is, as I said, that it's at this point, devices are our only portals to the outside world. And so if, if, you, if you follow the uh, practice that you just described rigorously, you know, then you would miss a lot of dinner invitations. People would, would get in touch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's true. And say, hey, we're having dinner this evening. Would you like to join us? And you would miss those. And if they, if they text you at 11 o'clock, if they haven't heard from you from at 3 o'clock, they can be kind of irritated. Like, what's the matter? Didn't you get my text? And I, right. It's not just them. It's, not, it's me, too. If I sort of text somebody and I don't hear from them for four hours, I sort of think, what's wrong with you? Aren't you getting my text? I sort of miss the local practice, which is if you want to see me, I'll be at the bar and come on by. You don't need to make an appointment. Mm. I'm probably there sometime between when work is done and when I usually leave. And I'm at the bar. And then sometimes you'll go there and I won't be there. And that's okay too. Why weren't you at the bar? Oh, I had to do something. Oh, (laughs) you know, it's like space can help organize time. Well, what would the Socratics have done, right? Where where, where did, where where did it? The Agora. The Agora, right? (laughs) People don't. There's no forum like that where anywhere where you can go in person to debate about the issues of the day, is there? Yeah, I kind of wish. I kind of wish there were more. And, and in Vienna, they had the uh, the cafe wits, mm-hmm. and I kind of missed that. High school was a little bit like that for us. That you could just mm-hmm. show up in the hallway mm-hmm. and be like, "Hey, you guys are reading Hamlet," or like we hey. had that in graduate school. In graduate school, my friends and I would hang out at the coffee house. And the coffee house was a place you could just sit, you could read, you could chat, you could have a beer. And if you just went there, you'd figure you'd probably see some of your friends. And it was just always the place to be. It was, uh, it was really nice. That was a nice, that was some of the best times of my life. That kind of just lounging around, reading in the library, going to the coffee house. And 
Yeah. And one thing that makes me furious every time I get on the subway these days is that there are these big, um, you know, car long advertisements for um, Match and Tinder, these internet dating services. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just shocking to me that in the last 10 years there's been this corporate takeover of intimacy and dating, where this rather large part of our personal lives has just been turned over to large corporations, and no one seems in the slightest bothered by this, partly because, of course, these corporations have gone out of their way to signal their openness to, you know, a variety of, of personal and sexual arrangements, and so they haven't been attacked from that direction. But the idea that, um, as I said, that we should just you know turn over our personal lives to corporations. Normally, this would have you know uh, this would have liberals' hair on fire, and liberals just seem completely unconcerned about this. Mm -hmm. Of course, as I said, the issue is largely that the liberals are you know the people designing and, and developing the, the software. Well, it's a little bit like the um, you know my father used to tell me. I don't know if this is historically accurate, but let's pretend it is that. Uh, that the Germans, or no, the French, having been defeated by the Germans in World War I, created the Maginot Line, which protected them against an attack from one direction. But the guns couldn't move, <laughs> so the Germans were able to go around it. So it's almost like liberalism was an ideology that was created to defend against uh, a king making you do something that you don't want. And it's got a lot of armor against that. But the notion of taking advantage of you by giving you something that you do want that is ultimately going to screw you <laughs> is not something that it's a little, sort of a trick joint for liberalism. Like liberalism is not well designed to deal with that kind of problem. And therefore, that kind of problem has grown up like kudzu because the other kind of problem is kind of kept at bay. So the, peep, the, the malefactors in this right. world have developed this Well, if you think the highest good is personal autonomy, then as long as you're making the choice, that's all fine because you've got your personal autonomy to make the choice and it's all it's good. I mean, there's, you know, as usual, I guess I'm kind of conflating in my mind a, um, a network of political arrangements with a network of economic arrangements. But there's, you know, there's democracy and there's capitalism and the two have largely gone hand in hand, uh, but, you know, not entirely. I wonder, has either of you come across or read this book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism by, by Daniel Bell? Um, I read it and yet I've almost completely forgotten what was in it. I, I had a mm -hmm. mental image of what I wanted this book to contain. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it really did contain what it, I thought. <laughs> you know, that's actually, we were talking about how to avoid reading too much. Yes. And I think one answer is, think what you think is in the book yes. and write it yourself. Like, I think I don't need to read that book about the guy who invented late antiquity. I can just sort of imagine what the story of a man who invented late antiquity, like like he met this other professor who didn't believe in late antiquity, and then he got in a fight with him, and then he wrote this great <laughs> book. And, and I can write that story in my head, and I don't need to actually learn the facts. Um, I think so what would this book say? What would this book say if you were writing it? He hated the 60s. He hated hippies. Oh, he hated hippies. He was at Columbia, I guess, and he was during the events of 68. He was furious that capitalism had apparently given rise to some form of hedonism and disrespect for authority that was represented by hippies. He was just very unhappy that you know cultural trends were moving in that direction. What I wanted him to say, maybe to some degree he did say, was that capitalism requires the masses to be both producers and consumers. And in those two roles, it places very different demands on people. That's the contradiction. The contradiction is that uh, as producers, we, uh, as workers, we all have to abide by some kind of Protestant work ethic, get up early in the morning, go to work, work hard all day. But then, 
you know, capitalism also requires the masses to be consumers, and as consumers, we're supposed to be hedonists. Mm. We have to drink the beer that we worked hard all day to brew, mm. and so we also have to have a kind of healthy disregard for um, <laughs> how we're going to feel the next morning waking up with that hangover. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, to your point, why does, why does this have to do with your point? Oh, because, as you said, the, our, our, our social institutions... Um, <clears throat> We're set up very well to protect us from some kind of um, um, uh, frontal assault on our our, uh, um, our liberties, our rights, and our interests. They weren't set up so well to protect us from this kind of stealth assault. And maybe this is in our latter capacity as as consumers rather than as producers. Insidious forms of manipulation, right? Exactly. Appealing to the impulses, uh, that, impulses that look like they're going to maximize so, your freedom and open up your possibilities, but in fact they're kind of ensnaring you in new habits and, and uh, purchases. <laughs> so I would encourage the, the listeners who wish to be uh, happier and deeper and more focused to, to drop out. Read some more books. But, but not books. too many. Not too many. Really good ones slowly. Read good slowly. Ones. Are you wrapping it up now? I think we're I coming think so, to yeah. a, We're coming in for a landing, I, I think. Yeah. I see. Because, yeah. I mean, what you're saying is is to drop out and this is the... This is the uh, Solution offered by Thoreau, right? Just mm-hmm. build a cabin and go to the woods, or indeed, in, in you know, latter day Thoreau was was uh, the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. But he had his time. mother doing his laundry, didn't he? All that time, all oh, the time he was by the lake. The skeptics always say that, <laughs> right? But I feel differently. I like society, and I want to be a part of society. Yeah. And I'm sad yeah. that the only alternative that seems to be offered to someone who hates technology is just to withdraw from society wholesale. And, and get back to nature. I mean, I love nature. I love getting back to nature. But I wish there was some alternative, some well, other way. Well, uh, Benjamin Franklin formed this group called the Junto, where it was a group of people, I think originally in Philadelphia, who got together and talked about their pro- their uh, prospects for moral self-improvement and improvement of society. Um, maybe we should form Franklin Juntos, where hmm. a bunch of people agree to drop out together and then meet at the bar and read the Iliad and the talk reading about group. more reading, yeah. more reading groups, my <laughs> friends. I'd like that. Yeah, very good. All right. Any final words, Michael, Professor Michael Thaddeus, Columbia University? I will deliver it again. <laughs> As I said, I, I mean, rejecting technology does not have to mean rejecting society. Uh, those, those would be my that that would be how I would sum it up. Nicely put. Okay. I'll drink to that. Okay. Yes. To a to a convivial ludditeism. Okay, Okay, thanks. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Yeah, this has been uh, Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a podcast. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.